the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome today, Dr. Matthew Hannibal. Dr. Hannibal is a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon. Good morning, Dr. Hannibal, and thanks for being here today. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. With our first part, we discussed quite a bit about axial back pain and being non-operative treatment. Are there situations where someone has a chronic low back problem, advanced stenosis or something like that, that is a surgical problem? And I just wanted to talk about that some. In a lot of patients, there are comorbidities that you have to think about. Psychological and workers' comp claims come to mind with people with chronic back pain. What's your experience with these patients, and do you have any kind of written instruments or questionnaires that you use to help you decide? So that's a really good question. You're absolutely right. Spine care becomes extraordinarily difficult, especially from a surgical perspective, because there are so many external factors that have nothing to do with surgery as to who you pick as appropriate surgical candidates. I don't personally use any instruments at this point. Uh, I've used many, many of them in the past over the years, especially doing research. How accurate they are becomes very difficult, like the Oswest tree for psychological, what their psychological state is. If you say you get a certain number on that test, maybe you should operate, maybe you shouldn't. That becomes really difficult to discern. And I haven't found that uh, those instruments have helped me a lot. There's no question that it's an issue. A lot of groups have gone to more like team approaches where they'll have therapists and rehab medicine or anesthesiologists, pain management doctors, and a surgeon and a primary care doctor, and uh, maybe a psychologist on their team. And they'll evaluate the patients. Uh, obviously, that takes a little bit more coordination. A lot of private practices are, are never going to achieve that. But they have found that it improves their surgical outcomes if they're able to look at those. And certainly, the ones that we look for and the way I look for personally is, are they having a lot of anxiety and depression? Are they on medication for it? Are they seeing psychiatrists for it? Is it a workers' comp claim or do they have secondary gain issues? Other studies have suggested that the more pain people have, in other words, if they're 11 out of a 10, or you know, they're saying they're 10 out of a 10, but they're walking into your office. So the more pain that they perceive themselves as having, the less likely they are to get better. If they're not working, if they're already on disability and have filed for such, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to improve them significantly with surgical intervention, especially if it's an axial low back pain problem. We try to avoid smokers, BMIs over 40. And so once you add up all these criteria, uh, it really limits the number of, of surgical candidates that are really high quality surgical candidates, especially when you're talking to axial low back pain, because you'll find that many of the back pain patients have some component of those things. Try to work through that as best we can. And it also makes axial low back pain as a surgical problem a very small portion of, of at least my practice. And I think I was actually at a, a meeting this morning with several other spine surgeons. I went around and asked them, how much does degenerative changes in a lumbar spine and axial low back pain, how much of your practice is that with regards to surgery? And uh, it's usually about one or 2%. Very small percent. Great information. We went to an earlier podcast when I was looking at, I think it might've been my very first one, about a 360-degree fusion on a spondylolisthesis. If you can determine that, or if you think that the disc or the facet joint is the source of the pain, do you ever consider a fusion for that? If you've tried everything else, nothing's working, 
And, you know, if, if the psychological component, there's no secondary gain, if you think that's the legit course, do you ever consider a fusion for that patient? Are you suggesting somebody's got a spondylolisthesis and a only axial low back pain? Not necessarily a spondy, but uh, facet joint arthritis or uh, advanced degenerative disc. If you think that it's coming from that, and a, a spondy, sure, but if, if it's not necessarily a spondy. In other words, do you ever do a fusion? Is there any indication for fusion in axial low back pain with a disc problem? Is it ever possible? You know, I will tell you this, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina does not approve that as an example. I did not know that. Yeah. So they've stopped approving surgery for disc degeneration in any case. They'll never approve that procedure. And they've gone away from it because of its poor results. Mm -hmm. In other words, it doesn't seem that patients that have that condition and you fuse them, uh, whether you do an ALIF or you do a 360 fusion, their results are so poor, you might get some of them better, but it's just so hard to predict which ones are going to improve that they've just stopped funding it altogether. You can, I can't order that on a patient, even if I recommend it, the insurance won't pay for it. So those Blue Cross patients, we cannot have that. Now there are others that can, you can do it on Medicare, you can do it as a work, workers' comp, things like that. Uh, obviously workers' comp also has their own issues, uh, have much harder time getting better from any procedure. Even our largest studies like the SPORT study, which was a nationwide study on disc herniations and spondylolisthesis, suggested that for disc herniation, which was one of our most successful procedures when performed on workers' compensation patients, they actually didn't do any better whether you operated on them or not in the long run. So that's really suggestive that you know it really depends on the patient as to how much benefit they're going to get from any procedure, even your most successful ones. And the less successful ones like axial low back pain and degenerative disease is even less successful. So that's just one perspective. But to answer your question fully, would I ever do it? And I will tell you what the, what the indications for me would be. If they meet all these other criteria we've discussed as far as not having psychological issues or, or secondary gain, what I look for on an MRI is single level disease, degenerative disc that's narrowed, not a tall disc. They don't have instability, but they have, they have what's called modic changes. So modic changes are end plate changes around the disc, and they come in really three flavors. Type 1 on an MRI shows a lot of edema in the, in the surrounding end plates. Type 2 would be more like a fatty degeneration. And type 3, they've become sclerotic, so they're dark on a T2. Type 3 are very chronic changes, unlikely uh, to get better. Type 2 is, is, is also progressed, and it's more of a fatty change. Now, type 1 suggests there's still edema, much like uh, you have irritation in an arthritic knee or, or other joint. And those patients in my opinion, do tend to respond if you do a fusion. So if you have an otherwise healthy patient that really just has axial low back pain without any secondary factors, and you've got type one modic changes at a single level with a disc that's collapsed, I think that patient would be a candidate and only axial low back pain would be a candidate for a fusion. And usually I would do a, I try to do an anterior fusion on that. Those patients, of course, are very, very few. The other thing that we haven't mentioned here with axial low back pain is deformity, of course. Patients who are in that 40 to 65-year-old range who have kyphosis, kyphosis is its own problem, which has become better recognized over the last 10 years. If they have chronic axial low back pain and a kyphotic deformity of the lumbar spine, they become candidates for reconstructions if they have failed all other treatments. Now, that's not an urgent care diagnosis. That particular diagnosis is somebody who's tried aggressive, non-operative treatment for six months and still has symptoms is probably a good idea for them to see a surgeon at that point 
to see if that kyphotic deformity uh, warrants correction because those patients uh, do tend to respond. It's just a much larger surgery. They have to be very healthy to tolerate it. Do you use instrumentation when you do a fusion? Pretty sure everybody now uses instrumentation. Neurosurgery as well? Yeah, non-instrumented fusions, even for the neurosurgical group, both in cervical fusions, lumbar fusions. I think everybody's using at least pedicle screws at this point. A lot of people are using inner body instrumentation as well. What has happened is that with the advent of robotics and navigation, and I was just talking to somebody about this this morning, another surgeon, is that it's become so easy to put in pedicle screws uh, where it used to be. We used to do them freehand under x-ray, a lot more challenging to do. Uh, now with guidance and navigation, it's become hard to miss almost. So you'll see more and more surgeons, even the ones that, that maybe weren't trained to do pedicle screws can now do them. Uh, so I think almost everybody uses instrumentation at this point. And I have the singular, um, uh, I don't know, the outstanding thing that I was the one guy that worked with Dr. Liebelt before he retired that broke a pedicle screw in the OR. <laughs> I was tightening it. He said, I don't worry. Nobody's ever broken one. Uh, oops. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> patient did fine, by the way. If you do a spinal fusion and somebody develops the degenerative disc above or below the level of the fusion and they get pain, where do you go? Do you go back and redo it? Uh, do you just treat the symptoms? I, I know it's kind of a very open-ended question, but what are your thoughts on that? So you have a four or five fusion, let's say, uh, and they've had it for a few years and it looks solid on an x-ray. You get flexion extension x-rays and the fusion does not appear to be moving, but the level above or the level below shows some degenerative changes, darker disc, or it's developed some spinal stenosis or something like that, which is not uncommon. Uh, again, if somebody has persistent axial low back pain after a fusion and they have some degenerative changes or above or below, then I tend not to consider that as adjacent segment problem. If they are developing instability or spinal stenosis, then you address it as you need to. Now, one of the issues we've had in the past is fusions were if the technique wasn't careful and you fused them in a bit of kyphosis where you didn't get the, all the, you didn't reconstruct their lordosis when you were doing the fusion, a lot more adjacent segment disease happened and they became unstable at the associated or adjacent levels. We're a lot more cognizant of that now. And I think most surgeons who are doing instrumentation are trying to reconstruct the lordosis as they do their fusion to try to avoid that adjacent segment disease. But of course, there's a natural history and it's going to happen in some patients. If they become unstable or stenotic at an adjacent level, you know, certainly, I mean, you do the same thing. The same thing as primary care. You're going to start with anti-inflammatories, activity modifications. You're going to do your physical therapy, weight loss, if they need that, and then injections. And if they fail all of that and it's been six months, then if they're unstable or stenotic, you would consider uh, surgical intervention for that. Post-op complications, someone that has spine surgery, this is something that will come into the urgent care. I've seen many patients come in with various kinds of problems after spine surgery. So I'm just curious, what kinds of things would be a more common complication than others and what kinds of things you have to look for? Obviously, you think about DVT and that kind of stuff, but specific to spine, what, what kinds of things would we look at? 
So again, if we're if we're looking at urgent care, you're talking about the early postoperative period, most likely. Usually within the first couple of weeks. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the most most common one is you're going to get like say somebody's had, and there are of course many many different surgeries, right? So there are many many different possible complications that you're going to see early. So trying to focus down on the ones that you're probably going to see the most. Number one is going to be uh, symptom exacerbation. Right. They had a microdiscectomy. They went home, and their pain is still out of control, or they still have leg pain after, after a microdiscectomy. That, that is not uncommon, right? So what people have to realize is that nothing we do in surgery fixes the nerve. We just don't do that. There's no way we don't have any technology for that. So what we're doing is basically decompressing the nerve and then the nerve, giving the, the nerve an opportunity to heal. That can take time. And it may inflame because it was just aggravated by the surgery. So it's what we call postoperative radiculitis. That's the most common after a microdiscectomy. And they're going to come in with some increased pain. Often, again, you can use steroids, Neurontin uh, medications to try to calm that down. Uh, sometimes an injection of Toradol is also helpful. The other one that we see is wounds. You have a problem with the wound. The wound will drain. A lot of times there'll be seroma or it'll be a little bit red, or it'll drain some blood, especially day six to day eight after, because there'll be a little hematoma and liquefy, and the hematoma will, will then um, be expressed. And so they'll be worried because they get this dark blood coming out of their wound if there's a little opening there. Uh, usually not concerning, as long as it's not very red, purulent, pungent, very warm. If it's an infection, obviously, uh, superficial infection or a little stitch abscess, Often you want to address the wound. If there's a little stitch you can see, you want to remove that. Betadine, alcohol, antibiotics for that. For a seroma, I just try to express it as much of it as you can get out. And then again, antibiotics, dressing, and just watch it. It's very rare to get a very deep infection early. Now, if you get out to about four weeks, you, you do have to worry about deep infections. And usually those are fairly obvious. In other words, they those wounds are bright red, there's pus associated with them. Uh, and those ones usually have to go to the hospital to be drained. Fortunately, they're, they're fairly uncommon, but uh, it's also something to, to consider if you see a bright red wound with a lot of pus uh, at about the four week point. If it's very early, it's more likely to be superficial and can probably be managed just with antibiotics and cleaning up the wound and making sure there's no stitches that are obvious. Mm -hmm. Great information. Hope everyone that does urgent cares or sees patients postoperatively are listening to this because you'll see these. They come in. Dr. Hannibal, I, I do have one more question, and this kind of goes back to our first part, our first interview, first part of our interview anyway. Gabapentin, what's your take on that? It seems like every patient that I see that's had back pain, the primary care has prescribed them gabapentin. What's your thoughts on that? I don't see any indication for gabapentin with back pain. Certainly, if you have spostenosis neurogenic claudication, it works. I use it for disc herniations. If you have a neural component, I think it works. Part of it is if patients have medical conditions that are causing back pain. So uh, I'm not sure why they're prescribing it. Do they think they have shingles? Do they think they have fibromyalgia? Do they have some other you know, medical condition that might respond to Neurontin? It's, it's certainly possible. That's why they're prescribing it for axial low back pain that we believe might be musculoskeletal or facet or disc or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I don't see where neurotin plays a role in that or that it would help. I mean, we typically will use the anti-inflammatories very judiciously if we can. And then uh, occasionally steroid pack, things like that are, are more beneficial. 
I try to be very careful about the muscle relaxers and especially with narcotics. There's been some studies out now, although narcotics may not be a negative when patients first have an episode of back pain. They've never had it before. Now they have a very bad episode. They can't do anything. If you want to give five days of a low dose narcotic, it seems to be okay. But the issue that we've had, obviously narcotics are, are very dangerous and we try to avoid them in, in backs uh, for long periods. But one of the studies has shown that it's the third prescription of narcotics that really puts people over the top. So if you're trying to treat a condition and you're the third person to give the prescription, uh, that uh, becomes the time where it's a critical decision on whether you're going to prescribe that or not. Unfortunately, that's where we in orthopedics tend to sit. We sit at the third prescription, meaning these patients go to the ER, they get a prescription. They go back to see their primary care doctor who refills their prescription. And the primary care doctor says, all right, well, you need to see an orthopedist. And then they show up in our office. And we have the decision of, are we going to write that again or not? And so uh, you got to be really careful about that third prescription. But if it's their first time and they've got really bad pain, I think five days of, of a pain medication isn't so bad. I think it's probably more effective than Neurontin. You just don't want to write it with uh, muscle relaxers. And if you can avoid the narcotics and the muscle relaxers altogether with steroids or uh, anti-inflammatories, I think you're better off. Dr. Hannibal, thank you so much for your time. And we'll have this out for you soon. Okay, have a great day. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Extremities in the Carolinas, Trauma for General Orthopedics, May 21st and 22nd, 2021. Check out the paos.org website for details.